Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. Looks like today we have myself from Nashville. We have Dan. Hey from Tel Aviv where it's nice and warm. AJ. Yo, yo, yo from the Arctic office in Pleasant Grove. And we have Daniel. I don't know where you're coming from. So if you wouldn't mind, introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what we're talking about today. So I'm Daniel Athrop. I'm coming to you from Iowa City, Iowa, home of the Iowa Hawkeyes. Uh, go Hawks. And I uh, am a former professor of journalism and media informatics at the University of Iowa. And I now am a independent consultant and freelance journalist. Uh, so I, uh, I have been giving talks for the last several years about JavaScript for data analysis and data science. And I have been a proponent of it and trying to help build the community. Are you building applications with Vue.js? Then you need to check out the Views on Vue podcast. Every week we bring in a guest panelist from the Vue community and talk about the interesting things being built with Vue or the changes coming in its ecosystem. You can find it all at viewsonview.com. Very cool. I don't think we've had anybody from uh, Iowa on before. I'm actually familiar with that area. I had spent a lot of time there growing up, so small world. <laughs> yeah, does anyone have questions to get us going? It sounded like we were talking about some pretty interesting stuff when I jumped on a few minutes ago. I don't know if we want to start there or somewhere else. Was any of it JavaScript related, though? It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Still cool, though. No, I, I think we'll jump into the topic first, though. So you're saying that we're going to be talking about using JavaScript for data science. That's JavaScript as opposed to what do people usually use when they do data science? Well, the dominant are R and Python. So R it tends to get used at the far end of the pipeline with by statisticians and analysts. And then the pipelines are mostly built in Python. Uh, and the heavy lifting is mostly done in Python because R is super slow, uh, except that actually Python compared to JavaScript is also super slow. Uh, so that's one of the, one of the, and super inappropriate uh, from its programming paradigm for the problems that are being solved. And just so, to make sure I understand what you just said. So are you saying that JavaScript is faster than Python or pa Python is faster than JavaScript? Uh, JavaScript is substantially faster than Python at everything except regular expressions. That's not actually that surprising. I mean, when you've got like Apple, Google, Microsoft, and the open source community trying to see who can develop the fastest uh, JavaScript engine, then you'll get some pretty amazing results. But, but again, before we delve into that, can you perhaps talk a little bit about what you actually mean when you when you say data science? Can you kind, kind of provide a definition for that? Sure. So that's a great question. Data science is a huge bucket because it's everything gets lumped in there from, you know, making a dashboard in Tableau to, you know, dealing with petabyte data at scale in real time. So if it involves, to me, uh, gathering, analyzing, and delivering data for decision-making and understanding. Now, did you choose JavaScript yourself, or were you kind of taking over a project where JavaScript was already the, the technology used? So I chose JavaScript myself for uh, probably an unusual reason. I uh, joined the university uh, I left this summer, but I joined about five years ago, and I began teaching a uh, course, elective course on, uh, it's called data journalism, which is just data science for journalists, uh, which is, you know, kind of like rocks for jocks in a, a certain way, because journalists mostly hate math. But it turns out I could do it without a lot of math being involved. As someone with uh, a minor in journalism, I will attest to that, <laughs> but... I've come to like math in my later years. Yes. Well, I always loved math and became a newspaper reporter after college, worked on my college paper, and I've used math since my first day on the job. Uh, but I began teaching this class, and I realized quickly that the way it was being taught at other universities, the way I 
learned it was super confusing because it's like, okay, we're going to do two weeks of Excel and two weeks of SQL or SQL, uh, two weeks of Python, and then two weeks of data visualization in something, and then a big project. And that is a lot to absorb for people who, you know, have never written a hello world uh, before, who've never done anything more in Excel than, uh, than maybe sort stuff. Uh, although my students were coming in able to make pivot tables because uh, the, our intro class required that. Uh, but that was it, that's the baseline. And I wanted to get them making interactive graphics in JavaScript. And to me, that meant I needed to start in JavaScript. And I was working alongside another uh, new professor who joined the same time as me, who was a front-end uh, UX designer. And when he wrote code, he wrote it in JavaScript, and he wrote a lot of data visualization code. We were both data viz folks. And so uh, he did all his scraping and uh, analysis in JavaScript. And I said, that's, that's madness. How, how could you possibly do that? Uh, you know, I came from a, like, I use all of these different tools in these different ways. And he said, well, you know, I just, I just don't have to change topics all the time. I can just use JavaScript for everything. And Node is awesome and you should use it. So I, uh, I quickly, uh, while I was getting ready to teach that class, tried to figure out how much I could actually do in JavaScript. And I'd done a lot of D3 work because if you do customized data visualization, the D3.js is the tool, uh, the tool to do uh, cool stuff. Uh, and so I realized actually, I had already been doing a lot of data analysis because my, my way of doing it tended to be I wanted to automate taking relatively raw data and uh, displaying it uh, without, so that I could drop new data in pretty easily. So what I had typically done was, uh, was figure out all of my data analysis and then recreate just the piece that led to the visualization using D3 and JavaScript. Uh, so once I actually looked at it, I realized, wow, I already know how to do all of this. I just haven't been doing it. Uh, and it's super fast because I was running fairly complicated analysis in the browser and people, you know, uh, resizing by population. It's called a, it was a pseudo Dorling cartogram of counties. So you resize them based on their population and arrange them so that they look nice into a, a like a jigsaw puzzle. Some of that I had is manual work. The the prettiness of the locations, actually, I, uh, I I worked with an artist on. But the resizing had to be done dynamically uh, because we could have different numbers. We could have different election results. It could change over time. Uh, so having learned to do all these things, I realized, hey, I could just do it this way. And I could teach my students to do it this way. And instead of using SQL, I can just use an array of objects. And instead of writing a select query, I can write a, a you know, a filter. And uh, so I had a bunch of journalists who, you know, had never taken an advanced math class, certainly never written a hello world, and was able to get them writing their own, uh, you know, interactive visualizations in D3 by the end of the semester. And I felt pretty successful after that, and, and I said, well, if I can if I can do this with journalism students, what what could we do if we actually put our minds to it? Based on what you're saying, if I understand correctly, so the way that you usually that you previously worked is that you would have some backend services doing the numerical computation, and for that you would use whatever other programming language, and then the front end visualization was done with JavaScript. And the change that kind of you made was to start doing the numerical computation using JavaScript as well. And initially, perhaps to avoid 
jumping between different systems and then just because you enjoy doing it in JavaScript and it was really fast? Am I kind of presenting this correctly? That's about right. I think uh, I think it's really helpful. Node obviously made a huge difference. Certain things don't work well in a browser. You know, you don't want to deal with terabytes or gigabytes of data uh, in the browser. But you certainly you certainly can. You know, once in a while, some of the projects I work on with a Node backend, I have to go into the command line uh, params and and increase the amount of memory available. Uh, up from one gigabyte because that can be a limiting factor uh, depending on what you're doing. But yeah, it's just, uh, I came to love JavaScript. Uh, I did not like JavaScript uh, before it became my full-time language. It was a, to me, it was a, um, an obligation. I wanted to make things in the browser. I had to use JavaScript and I avoided it at all other costs. But uh, once I really started using JavaScript, I realized that it's actually better for Pretty much all of these things, uh, the programming paradigm, the, you know, sort of, you know, async possibilities uh, are really lend themselves to doing uh, complicated uh, analysis. And there's there's other uh, other people who think so. You know, Google has a TensorFlow implementation in JavaScript. Uh, so uh, you can take any TensorFlow model and you can develop a new model in JavaScript and, uh, you know, do pretty complicated machine learning stuff. Uh, this is actually interesting to me because we're taking over or myself and someone else or we have an intern right now, like a AIML intern. And um, when she leaves, I'll be taking over her project and the other guy will be helping out as well. Now we're using Python. One quick question I wanted to ask is, um, like Dan was saying about all the computational stuff and you had mentioned Node, but is this in comparison to just like Python out of the box? Because I, I don't know much about Python, but I know that they have, you can leverage like async code and, and stuff like that. So is that taking that into account? Because I'm going to ask this question just because I think um, it's going to take a lot to shift any sort of mindset in this space that JavaScript um, is a, a viable option. So yeah, there are async libraries that have been grafted on top of Python, uh, but Python is, uh, is they're not na natural or native to Python. Most of the uh, high-end statistical stuff uh, is actually grafted onto Python and the paradigms are a bit off for the, the fundamental structure of Python. Uh, Python wins on data science because of its community and uh, because of its popularity in academic settings. And so uh, it's popular in academic settings. People who learn this stuff, you know, came from academia, are trained in academia, right? Computer science courses are taught using Python. And But is the heavy duty computation actually performed? Let, let's say I'm using Python. Uh, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm more old school of not using JavaScript and using Python. Is the heavy duty computation actually done in Python or is Python calling out to some external service or library or whatever that's actually implemented in C or Fortran or whatever, and that's actually doing the numerical heavy lifting? Uh, there's definitely uh, the possibilities to to call into the C++ Blast library, and there's implementations on top of that. Uh, but the problem is that ultimately a lot of the, the logic that you're building is custom, and you're actually writing it so that the number crunching, the actual number crunching engine uh, may be in C++, but all of the other steps around it are what you're writing. And that code is in, in Python and it's a lot slower than JavaScript, which is not always the limiting factor, but it, it's an important factor. Uh, and you're really doing something that uh, in a lot of cases you're, you're writing async code. You're trying to create callbacks in a language that isn't designed for callbacks. Uh, you know, yeah, you but, can... but sorry to interrupt, but that's kind of the thing that I'm trying to understand. So it's callbacks to what? It's callbacks to like a back to another system that's performing computation for you. What is it calling back to? Or what is it calling to that you're waiting to receive a callback? Well, I see. So a lot of times uh, you are, you have a data service and you're calling to APIs, right? You're calling to, to get data from somewhere or there's some 
there's some bigger service, uh, something uh, like uh, Amazon Redshift, uh, where you have a bunch of data and it's streaming in streaming data, and their their async and callbacks are really useful. Uh, there's also a, a whole world of what's called high performance computing that's done uh, with parallel processing, and so you actually need to dis you actually need to break code up into distinct pieces that can be map reduced uh, across multiple processing cores, uh, and that. That implementation is, again, uh, there's a lot of people trying to do it in R. IBM has spent a lot of time and effort on this. Uh, there's some implementation being done over Python, but you you end up with this problem of, of a language that just isn't, it's designed for, in the case of R, procedural programming. It's only quasi-object-oriented, not really object-oriented at all. Uh, and then Python, which is, uh, you know, sort of a standard object-oriented, but synchronous model. And then any parallel or async is being done through a library. Uh, and then those libraries are themselves sort of, they have, they have a degree of awkwardness. You know, imagine we have enough trouble learning callbacks and promises and async programming in a language where it's part of the language spec. Uh, Python, it's not. And so you have you have a sort of a translation problem that these libraries have to solve, and and mostly and a lot of them have to solve it in Python, uh, which is again slow, uh, not super slow. I mean Python's great. I love Python. I've written a lot of Python code in my life. I still sometimes write Python code because the libraries are a lot more mature. Uh, there's a lot bigger community. So, uh, but uh, anytime you have to either do things in parallel or you have to call back from another, from an external service, JavaScript is really better designed for that. And uh, again, and, and the speed, the speed is better. Let me, let me give you an example. Let's say you have, this is a problem that I'm, I'm current, it's a simple trivial problem that I'm currently solving, but uh, it's illustrative. I have, uh, uh, my wife is a, a professional fundraiser. And uh, so she has a, a service that is doing her data collection, payment processing, and then it's streaming out the contribution objects, uh, which I, in JSON, which I am then uh, planning, uh, working on taking into DynamoDB. Now uh, it's just gonna, I'm gonna write a Lambda. It's gonna execute that. Uh, and it's going to run, and I'm going to be able to do some asynchronous things with that data because that data then needs to get get processed. Uh, it needs uh, some analysis done of it. It separately needs uh, to be stored in a different data set. It separately needs to be pushed to her newsletter software. Again, this is a fairly trivial task, uh, and frankly, I could probably write it by like just download a download a spreadsheet every day and uh, upload it every day and it would take me not a huge amount of time uh, but uh, by by having this right when uh, hopefully she signs up a, a giant client who's doing a hundred thousand transactions a day uh, you know all of a sudden uh, we can have that in real time and it can do all of those things and it's got a flexibility and I can drop all of them into one Lambda uh, so that all of the different, instead of chaining a whole bunch of other things together, because I can do the parts that need to be done synchronously using async await, and then all of the delivery at the other end, uh, and all of the sending things out that maybe only have to go to one place can be done uh, using promises or can be done uh, just fired off and let it go. So if I'm trying to, to summarize what you're saying is it's this. So you're getting some sort of, let's say, a request from a front end. You're doing a bit of custom crunching on the input values. Then you're calling asynchronously to either get some data or to do some heavy lifting but standardized computation. 
you get the data back and you run it again through the custom pipeline to get the numbers that you want in order to display those numbers. And so would that be a more, a more or less accurate description of the, of the, of the flow? Uh, that's about right, except that then I have to take uh, those numbers at the end and also send them to several different places. Oh, cool. But yeah, so it might be like, like you said, it, uh, it might be a sequence of, it's a sequence of operations, but each one of these operations is in and of itself is asynchronous. Exactly. Oh, and in some cases, right, I'll have one operation that can be done and then I'll branch, right? So I'll async await to do this calculation. And then I start, I can start a, a separate chain of things, either in a, a separate async function uh, that I can call or just with promises uh, so that all of the pipeline that has to happen to go to this service or to create this visualization happens asynchronously from each other. So two like technical questions that uh, kind of, you know, jump to my, my mind. Uh, one, what kind of difference, if any, has uh, big in, the introduction of big int done for this? Is there any like implication out of that? I think at the, the heavy duty end, uh, some of the libraries like that are more numerical, like MLJS and then obviously uh, TensorFlow.js uh, are going to have or are going to make use of it. And there have been some libraries to, you know, sort of hacks around to create fake big ints before. So my assumption is that that's going to speed things up a lot. Uh, but from the user land perspective, mostly uh, that's already been abstracted away. Uh, into the libraries. Oh, cool. So you're, what you're saying is that effectively, even though the BigInt wasn't a built-in feature of the, <clears throat> sorry, of the language, where it was needed, it was uh, shimmed, and now we can uh, effectively get rid of the shims, so it will just make life easier to people doing the implementation and maybe make the stuff faster, but from, uh, from somebody who's consuming the data, it's not going to make that much of a difference. That's about right. And another question, have you ever played with trying to move some of that back-end computation into the, for, into the front-end in, into a worker or something like that? I haven't ever tried to do it uh, with, in a worker. That would be a, an interesting problem to solve, actually. Most of the things that I'm, I am doing that end up in the front-end uh, have been sort of, it just makes a lot of, it's always made sense to ship, create an API and just have, or to a point, I, I will say, I, I do have it do a fair amount of the transformations can happen in the front end. And I have done that fairly often uh, because if you have a visualization, you want it to be flexible. And also I fall in, in a category of, you know, so much of the internet is broken if it's more than five years old. I've gone back and, you know, over my career, most of the interesting things that I've built no longer exist. Uh, so I have I've moved to trying to have a lot of things where I can make it work off a static JSON or can make it work off a CSV. Uh, and so I can, so there's a, there's a certain amount of, of I would say, light duty computation. Uh, it's very easily done in the browser. It's, it's shockingly fast, actually. Uh, up until you get to, you know, maybe 10 megabytes of data. Workers would, would be an interesting approach. It's, uh, it's a web API as opposed to a, as opposed to a language feature. And so I, I'm all, I, I've never really dug into it and I haven't seen a lot of library support. Uh, look, within the worker, it's effectively just JavaScript. The, the main advantage of offloading like uh, heavy-duty computation to a worker is that uh, from, from the front-end perspective is that if you run it within the main thread, it will just be blocking to the user interface. So if somebody tries to interact with, with the graph, for example, while you're running a computation, uh, it just would not respond because it's too busy doing the computation. For the worker, it's kind of like an API. You you call into it, you give it uh, 
whatever you wanted to compute and when it's done it posts back the the results so it's like becomes totally asynchronous from your perspective so just not blocking that's the main advantage and where compared to putting the stuff on the back end like it's just i would say it's more or less a question of potentially of of cost like if you're doing your computation in the back end uh, you know you're you're paying for the back end services now cloud computing is is significantly lowering the cost but there's still a cost uh if you're if you're putting it in a worker you're shifting the cost over to the consumer because it's eating their battery on their device but uh it's, it's offloading the computation from the server now it might be slower especially if they have a mobile device where compared to a fast server and like you said they probably have uh less memory than a high end server so if uh, like you said if 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 the de- if for data science you need a lot of memory that can certainly be a limiting factor still it might be an interesting architecture to try can can you give an so you mentioned d3 as as what you're using for the visualization and tensorflow is what you're using for machine learning can you give examples of some of the additional libraries you you tend to to use in this context Uh yeah so there's a there's a library called simple statistics uh that's really got a nice uh feature set for doing you know sort of basic statistical tests basic means medians modes those you know sort of uh run of the mill margins of error uh things that you you have to do a lot in data science uh or in data analysis in general uh there's a fair amount of that D3 is actually uh a fairly amazing library in uh in having done a really good job of implementing a fairly wide variety of of data analysis uh and data dealing with uh steps there's a there's a great library for dealing with larger uh CSV flat file databases data sets uh called papaparse uh and it's it's really nice and i i use that whenever i have uh in ingesting a, a large uh text files which happens a lot on the server side on the you know on the on the the ingestion side a lot of times you're getting getting things in uh one example would be i'm working on a project involving census data uh and there's it has to ingest uh about 200 tables for each uh state and US territory. Uh and each of those is a CSV uh and some of them are very large. Uh they're very wide CSVs actually. They're not mostly not super long. Uh wide CSVs are are a, a particular problem. Papaparse is is really great for that. Uh, see there's MLJS uh which is is for more of your numeric com- computations less uh ML is machine learning but it's it's more it's more on the a uh side of uh complicated statistics and uh implementation of of numerical underlying numerical things these things like logistic regression uh that fall into sort of the machine learning category but aren't supervised or unsupervised learning the way we think about it uh TensorFlow obviously Google puts a lot of energy and emphasis on that and and it's hard to beat Google for engineering quality and talent uh, particularly when they then go and open source it. Are you stuck trying to figure out how to get to the next stage of your developer career? Maybe you're just not advancing fast enough in the job you're in or you're trying to break in in the first place or for whatever reason you keep going to interviews and it's just not working. You want to land that dream coding job but it just doesn't seem to be working out. Well, Johnson Mez has written a book for you called The Complete Software Developer's Career Guide. He walks through each stage of the development career and all of the things that you need to do in order to move up, keep learning, keep growing and find that next job that's going to get you where you want to go. So if you're stuck and trying to figure this stuff out, go pick up the complete software developer's career guide it's the number one software development book on amazon it's sold over 100,000 copies so far i actually have friends of mine that reach out to me and go hey do you know this johnson mez guy cuz his book is awesome so go get the book you can get it at devchat.tv/completeguide that's devchat.tv/completeguide i do 
have a question that I have two questions. I'll start with one that's probably slightly more related to what we're talking about at this very moment. One is kind of back to what we were talking about earlier. So back to like Python versus JavaScript though, like I know um, at work, we are uh, kind of deciding between a couple of different algorithms for some time series data and have settled on something called uh, the Facebook profit algorithm. And like, I just went to the documentation on GitHub for it now, and I see that they only have implementations in R and Python. So I'm kind of curious, like, is this a problem that you face right now where like a lot of these different algorithms aren't necessarily, they don't have JavaScript implementations right now that are um, probably like well-tested and, um, and, and I guess like the other question, is it just, do you think like JavaScript will take time to catch up? Cause we've had, I don't know, I can think back to like two years ago and we had like the Vue versus React debate and Vue like caught up over time. But yeah, like I know that this Facebook profit algorithm is pretty heavily used and um, the fact that I'm not seeing any JavaScript support for it. That's a huge problem. One of the reasons I'm, I'm out there trying to evangelize this. Um, I actually uh, had a short-lived JavaScript for data science weekly newsletter and there really wasn't enough content, uh, enough things going on, new things happening to have news every week. So it sort of petered out uh, because the, the community in, in JavaScript isn't there yet, might not, uh, you know, I think JavaScript is, is the right language for data science. Right now, uh, you know, the center of gravity, statisticians use R, computer scientists use Python. Those are uh, and those are really the the places where things are implemented and developed, uh, and then uh, those things then tend to be consumed at the last stage, you know, in the browser or through a web interface. But all of the the actual work uh, is mostly being done in I would say the high end stuff mostly in Python. Yeah, it's it's a frustration for me. Uh, <laughs> I can see. I'm I'm excited that you're talking about it. It's a frustration for me. I am not a you know AI researcher. I am not a algorithms guy. I am a consumer of those things. So uh, actually, I'm you know working on uh, a lot of projects where I I do have to drop into R or drop into Python uh, for pieces of what I'm doing. Uh, so. It's uh, it's kind of hard to get there. There's there's newly now I, I will say there is a uh, a really good analysts toolbook uh, uh, that's finally been created in JavaScript, and I think that's that's going to make a huge difference uh, just because of tooling. That's uh, the DataForge notebook, uh, and it's by. Uh, oh, uh, course i'm gonna forget his name when i'm supposed to be saying it oh it's okay but, you can drop it in yeah. later if you need to um the other question i had was you know because you're like touching on it now and i guess this was my way of circling back to it um interestingly enough because like i would love to be able to use more javascript obviously with like the stuff we're doing at at work because that's kind of my bread and butter but um there's just like the python ecosystem is massively larger for it at this point uh, but i thought it was interesting um uh so i asked google nest the other day what what's better python or javascript and you know that's a very open-ended question but i was surprised that google nest was like python is better because it's easier to learn um so the people that you're teaching javascript to i think sometimes especially like d3 or just like the async nature of javascript can can make it a little bit more challenging for beginners than python um have you faced any of that in teaching students to use JavaScript? So I would say that JavaScript uh, is harder to learn for people who already have made the jump to writing code and the code they're writing is in something different than uh, JavaScript or another sort of semicolons and curly brackets language. But the, the, for teaching uh, my students in any case, the gap uh, between nothing and something is the large, really the large part. So 
it could be five or seven or 10% harder for them to learn JavaScript uh, than it would be for them to learn Python. But I, I will tell you, I have students who, because of our media informatics program, are simultaneously taking uh, my course and, uh, you know, intro level computer science courses. And, uh, you know, I will say that uh, my students had a lot easier time uh, with JavaScript than with, uh, than beginning to understand list comprehensions in Python. Uh, so it, it's arguably easier, but I think the difference, I, I think the difference is smaller than people think. And the other thing I will say about teaching students, teaching new people JavaScript is, uh, and the ability to do things in it is at the end of the day, I can teach a student in their browser. It goes, it gets data, processes, it does, it does what we want to do with it. And it displays it in a graph, in a chart that they have created, that they can interact with, uh, that they can see and touch. They shouldn't touch it if it's, unless it's on a touch device, but it's on a <laughs> touch device, they can actually touch it. Uh, and and they, they've only had to learn one language. It all works, relatively speaking, the same, you know, and then I can take that student uh, and uh, an example, I had a student who uh, was into sports. And so for his final project, he scraped the uh, basketball play-by-plays for every, every team in the Big Ten. Uh, and uh, the goal eventually was, was to do some analysis on that for an undergrad undergrad project just just the scraping of of 10 different fairly complicated websites was or 12 there are 12 teams in the big 10 sorry websites was a uh, was a was a fairly large undertaking uh, and that uh, but he was able to do that right without in the same language that he could make a visualization in uh, and that's uh, and that's a huge that's a huge difference because the best moment in terms of getting people to do this is how you get them committed. And the moment that gets teaching undergrad journalism students, the moment that gets them committed is when they make a bar chart and then I show them how to make a, to create a CSS hover selector and it will change the color of the bar they're hovering over. And they'll just sit there and play with that for 15 minutes after they do it and go in and change the CSS over and over again. That's not strictly JavaScript, but that's what you can do when you have JavaScript. Try that with Python. Uh, I, I dare you. Um, so suppose um, I'm convinced and uh, I want to do my data science in, in JavaScript. And, and I actually even have a JavaScript experience, which makes it that much easier. But what I'm lacking is data science experience. Uh, where should I go to learn the math in general and data science in particular? Uh, there's a great new book uh, that came out earlier this year uh, uh, that is, uh, so JS for DS, uh, and the book is JavaScript for Data Science. And it's a, it's a textbook that's published by Pearson. Uh, and then they, they have a whole, it's, the whole thing is, is on the web is available. And so uh, it's a great, it's a great text for giving you sort of getting you started uh, on all of these things. And they walk through, they walk through everything, you know, from soup to nuts. Uh, I wish I had had this for my, my students last time I taught this class. Uh, Can you give the name of the book again? Because you were sure having... it's called, uh, the book is JavaScript for Data Science. Uh, the website is jsfords.org uh, and you can also buy it as a Dead Trees book that was published in January. Awesome. I just put the link. We'll have it in as part of the show notes. Uh, that's what, awesome. One thing I was going to ask too, um, do you think that, so I, I kind of, I don't know, my eyes weren't really open to this until um, being in the role that I am now. I always thought like, you know, AIML was more of something for um, like our traditional, you know, somebody who has some sort of like education in this and they're doing very specific things. But I kind of feel like um, just like 
just the economics of the world and trying to do forecasting and stuff like that do you think that this is going to fall into the laps of like more of like the everyday developer because they want to do things you know economically efficiently does that's how it's kind of fallen fallen into you know the the day-to-day stuff that I'm doing yeah I think there's right that that's a great question so there's certain things that are on on the edge that researchers do Right. And as researchers do those and normalize those and build tools for doing those, then normal people, I, I consider myself, I'm, I'm a dumb guy. I, I was a, a newspaper journalist. It doesn't get dumber than newspaper journalists. Let's, uh, I say that with some del- self-deprecation, but it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not a theoretic, theoretician. I don't develop, you know, new tools. I use tools. Uh, and I think that, you know, as those tools are there, then, of course, we're going to take advantage of them and we're going to learn the best practices for taking advantage of them. And, and that's what's happening. Right. Uh, TensorFlow is, you know, which has a JavaScript version, is an example of this. Right. Uh, you know, Google put a lot of time, smart brains, effort, engineering hours, statistician hours into creating a framework for doing these kinds of workflows. And now, you know, with some understanding of what you're doing, you can use that tool. You don't, you don't have to understand how to make the tool. You only have to understand how to use it. Uh, So I think that's over time going to be more and more of what developers end up doing because we can, right? I have one last question from my from my part. Based on the way that you described it before, a lot of the computation that's taking place that you're doing is, let's say, running in a, a lambda on on the Google, on the on the Amazon cloud, uh, and you're writing, I guess, potentially fairly complex. Uh, JavaScript code, not necessarily complex as doing really complicated uh, structures, but because you're doing various numerical computations, which can be non-trivial. How do you debug it? Uh, The correct answer is uh, with unit tests. Uh, That's the correct answer. Uh, The the other answer is uh, is by testing it, uh, doing it tests so just running it on things seeing what's wrong going back and finding it in the code unit testing solves most of that but you you do have to uh, I think in in anything involving data analysis you do have to run test you know full L. you have to run test data through it uh, where you know what the result should be and see if see if you get what if you get the result uh, that you wanted to get and it should be gnarly edge case data so that uh, you're not missing something that you're likely to see. Kind of reminds me of that uh, old uh, joke about uh, QA for, for a bar where a QA person walks into a bar and orders one beer, a million beers, minus one beer and, and, uh, and a lizard. Uh, and then an actual customer walks into the bar and, and asks where the bathroom is, and the whole bar explodes and kills kills everybody. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess it's it's if you if you can get really good test coverage uh, in advance, and if you can indeed break the the flow into units that can be fairly straightforward in a straightforward manner, unit tested, that's definitely the best way to go. Hopefully you don't run into situations where it's like some sort of convoluted data flow that you somehow need to step through or whatever. Yeah, I, I think the the answer is always uh, breaking things down into small pieces, breaking things into separate functions, uh, writing unit tests that are testable. That's always necessary. And then you still have to do the the integration tests. You still have to test it with live data to make sure that all of the parts that each individual is working, uh, you haven't missed the odd edge case where you, you know, where where two of them break in ways that are lead you to still get data and have that data be wrong. Cool. Uh, well, 
unless uh, anybody has any additional questions, I think we can head over into picks. No, no, I, right? I'm good. This is, I'm good. Yeah. I'm, um, I don't know. AJ, did you have anything that you wanted to chat about? Uh, the time has passed. There was a couple things earlier on, but the conversation went in a different direction. It's fine. <laughs> okay, okay. This was a great episode, though. Thank you for coming on. When I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby, and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then... And the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues, or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. But yeah, we do do some picks. So we'll go around, and then since you are our guest, we'll probably have you say save the guest for last. Uh, Dan, you want to go first? Um, okay, will do. So my pick for today uh, is uh, is content by a favorite of, of the podcast, Carl Simpson, Getify. I, I needed to get up to speed on, uh, on service workers. It's, uh, it's a core technology of the web, but somehow I've, I've managed not to do anything significant with it. So I uh, decided to my the best way for me to get up to to speed quickly is watch the front end masters course that Kyle has uh, titled Exploring uh, Service Workers, and so far it's definitely not disappointing. I'm enjoying it a lot, and Kyle is always is an amazing teacher. So that will be my pick for today. Awesome, AJ. Well, skip me for a second. Come back. Okay, cool. I'll go with mine. Um, so mine is actually it's like a white paper. I'm not sure if that's technically what you would call it, but it is basically like a an abstract for the different like details along with what, what they're talking about. But it's written by some people at Facebook about forecasting at scale. Um, and this was uh, what the intern that we have at work passed to me since she knows way more about this stuff than I do. But like I said earlier, um, I'm starting to level up on it since I will be taking over um, the stuff that she does when she leaves and try to automate it and stuff like that. So yeah, I will drop a link into our show notes for that. You should uh, have the system forecast that everything will be wonderful if all the devs are given a huge raise. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I'm actually very, very, very excited about learning this kind of stuff. It's uh, very intimidating to me, but uh, also really, really, really fun and interesting. So AJ, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I got, I got something for you. So first of all, I've picked this before. I'm going to pick it again. Rip grep or RG. It's a drop-in replacement for grep that is get aware respects.getignore.ignore and has some other points. The readme is atrocious because it's six pages of how this is faster than every other thing, which no one cares about, except for people that care whether their greps are 10% faster than other tools. So I've got a cheat sheet up on webinstall.dev for it and an easy way to install it on Windows, Mac, and Linux. And then I'm also going to pick, well, so there's, I have a concern about the way things are going and I've, I've been trying to think about how to put it in a good way. And a, a conversation the other day kind of brought this up to the top. When you consider history, the human history, first of all, I don't think that we're likely to change any more in the next 10,000 years than we have in the last 10,000 years. I think human nature is going to stay pretty much the same. And we're going to repeat history over and over and over again with all of its atrocities, because that's what we've done for the past 10,000 years. And I just can't see that changing. Um, and I, I want to point out that in history, the people who were the most adamant that we follow a morally superior path are generally regarded as history's villains. So when you think about the, and I'll put this in air quotes, Christian crusades, or in air quotes again, the Islamic beheadings, or 
in uh, air quotes again, the German cleansing. All of these things were based on like moral superiority of making the world a better place. And when we look back on these things, we generally don't think of them of having accomplished that goal. And in line with that, Wikipedia has some interesting pages, you know, on history and whatnot. And and this is that despite what you may think, because no matter which of the six different political movements you are a part of or not a part of, you're going to feel like I'm targeting you and I'm not. This this is so scarily broad that applies to just about every one of just about every party or position. And I think it's in part due to social media and the way that kind of the worst of human nature is brought out. But if you look at the Wikipedia article on propaganda in Nazi Germany, I think it will be eye-opening, an eye-opening experience as to the kind of strong opinions and, and divisiveness and moral arguments that were made to create something that was so horrific. And I just, I hope that people will be open-minded and aware that statistically you're more likely to be on the side of the oppressor than the side of the victim, no matter which political stance you're taking. Historically speaking, more people were the silent people or the people who were the oppressors than were people who were the peaceful people. And if you have that in mind, then perhaps you don't become one of the people that you didn't think you'd ever become. Daniel, do you want to go next? Wow, that's hard to follow. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I already mentioned uh, jsfords.org and the DataForge Notebook, uh, which is uh, something people should take a look at uh, to start doing uh, their data workflows in, in JavaScript. Uh, and I also want to give a shout out to Claudia.js or Claudia.js, which is a serverless uh, tool for uh, that's in uh, for JavaScript devs. Uh, that is uh, something I've started working with that is uh, way easier than something like serverless framework. It makes my head hurt even more than directly working with AWS does. Now, no offense to the serverless framework folks there. They're amazing. They're doing the, they're doing the Lord's work, but uh, Claudia.js is, is something that JavaScript devs should take a look at. Awesome. I just now, Daniel, if people want to contact you, uh, you know, follow you, read stuff you write, maybe reach out to you, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, so all my information can be found at daniel.buzz. Uh, it has links to all of my other my other presences on the internet. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming. This was really good. Is there anything else? Uh, thank you so much for having me here. I, I really appreciate it. I really want to urge people in the uh, JavaScript community to start start seeing JavaScript as a first-class place to do your, your work with data. Cool. I second that motion having used python and knowing how although the libraries like pandas and fb profit etc exist in python it's a real pain in the to use if you need it to work with more than one thing at a time i guess with that uh we will wrap up and say bye and we'll see everybody next week bye bye adios Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.